0: Before I introduce Gary, too, I wanted to thank uh, the funders of the Meet the Artist series, uh, which includes the uh, Stephen and Heather Mnuchin uh, Foundation, who make these uh, lectures possible. And I also want to say some special thanks tonight to Henry Thaggart uh, for his support of this exhibition, uh, of this uh, lecture, as well as Melina Kalinowska, who puts together these wonderful series uh, that we do all year long. Uh, I also want to acknowledge our Contemporary Acquisitions Council, so many of whom are here uh, this evening. And we just want to thank our members in general uh, on all different levels for making these kinds of projects possible. Uh, and I also want to mention that uh, Manuela uh, Mozzo from uh, the Metro Pictures uh, is here tonight and we're appreciative of the support of uh, the Metro uh, Get Pictures Gallery and glad she is with us uh, here tonight. Um, now to Gary Simmons. Um, Gary is a New York artist. He was born, in fact, in New York City. And in 1964, he studied at the School for Visual Arts uh, in New York, and then and at Cal Arts um, out in Valencia, in California. And he's been known primarily for his, I guess, what you could call erasure drawings that he began in the early 1990s. Uh, when I think he, you actually had a studio, which maybe had some blackboards in it, and, and that got the whole thing uh, started. Um, basically, they look a lot like uh, blackboards uh, with uh, chalk uh, on prepared uh, surfaces, but he'll tell us about that. He has been recognized for these works, among others, which re- deal with issues about identity and politics and confrontation of um, racial stereotypes, which, which really still exist in our um, uh, popular culture uh, and in our more serious culture uh, today uh, as well. Um, And as I mentioned, he has been in a number of exhibitions, including uh, those in uh, Chicago at the Museum of Contemporary Art, um, Chicago, the Philadelphia Museum, as well as here at the Hirshhorn. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Gary Simmons.
1: Thanks a lot. I'd like to really thank everybody for having me down. It's uh, a great thrill to be back here um, since the uh, Direction show, which was 95, and I was telling a story about what a thrill it was as a young artist to be in a museum of this level and have Bruce Nauman around the show at the same time and uh, taking a photograph with some of the banners out front and thinking wow, I'll probably never get back here so i better take this photograph now. Um, I started, uh, let me move back here. I studied at a time uh, in the 80s with a lot of, uh, I was fortunate to study with a lot of minimalists. And they had a a big impact on me. Uh, People like Jackie Windsor and uh, Robert Morris, um, Kasuth, Joseph Kasuth. uh, And they had a real impact in shaping the way that I was thinking about art. And I really enjoyed the way that. The minimalists looked at uh, architecture, and and the object, and how the relationship between the viewer, and the object and the room, had a very special kind of relationship. So minimalism was really how I cut my teeth, so to speak. But at the same time, uh, I was studying at visual arts at a really uh, politically charged moment. So uh, you know, it was the mid '80s and AIDS and uh, ACT UP. And a lot of strong politically active groups uh, that were you know sort of impressing on people that, that you need to address certain issues, and as an artist of color at the time, I, I was thinking, here I am you know uh, looking and really trying to find my way into the minimalist voice, but not really finding one uh, I could sort of grab onto and kind of call my own so I was trying to really look at how can I put my voice or my uh, interactions or political uh, uh, interests into a minimalist kind of of, uh, uh, format. I was working in a studio in Manhattan that was an old vocational school. And uh, I was struggling at the time to find the material, you know, that that great material that's going to transform everything that you think about. And in, in this studio, there were all these chalkboards that were leaning up against the walls and so for me to work on a drawing or an object or what have you, I'd have to move these damn chalkboards from one side of the room to the other. And, and there I am thinking, you know, how, how am I going to, what am I going to come up with? And I'm really interested in sort of education issues and and how, you know, we learn about, you know, race and racism, you know. And here I am moving this thing back and forth. and boom, it hits me. I thought, you know, this is, this is what I should probably be working with. So I started a series called the Disinformation Chalkboards. And basically I took the chalkboards that I found in the studio and started cutting them up. And I was thinking about the way that education is um, sort of shaped for you and the information that you're getting and the information that you're not getting and, uh, you know, different experiences for different folks um, you're obviously you're all getting collectively the same information, but you're filtering it and understanding it through your own lens. So, I was thinking that the disinformation chalkboards are, are a real quiet vo- political gesture that use the minimalist voice to um, talk about that kind of political agenda. So, this is the first piece that I did, which is now 20 years old. Um, the disinformation chalkboard on each it's a really bad slide so I apologize but on each sort of board uh, excuse me rail is a black chalk so you're offered this opportunity to write on a surface that that won't retain or receive any information uh, and this is a piece called disinformation paragraph out of the same series that I was really thinking about uh, sort of government letters and the idea of censorship, and uh, you know, a bigger voice telling you, or, or, basically censoring everything that you're getting. <clears throat> um, this is the disinformation classroom. Which, excuse me. Sorry. Um, what we have here is our uh, nine children 's size uh, podiums with the mics that are deadened, so the suggestion of offering a voice uh, possibly of authority similar to the one that i 'm at here, <laughs> um, is removed because the, the mics are all deadened so again, I was using this kind of the grid, and you know it was a kind of send up I always found still to this day that you know how you 're uh, affected or work that influences uh, your project, I like to have that exchange, that sort of banter back and forth visually with you know, me and some of those folks. So I was thinking about LeWitt uh, and you know, all the minimalists that use the grid. This is a piece called Big Dunce, which uh, is a very large, I think it's an eight-foot felt uh, dunce cap. And I thought it was really humorous that for somebody to be punished, they would have to put this hat on their head and uh, sit in a corner. So I thought this was like this big vessel of ignorance in a way. So it's kind of a joke towards punishment. Uh, around the same time, this is a, a piece called Noose Flag, which I was really drawn to the the power um, and the visual power of a flag and what it means, and whether it be an American flag or any kind of national identity attached to a flag and what, how uh, the inherent violence that you don't see that is behind some of those. So in this case, I was thinking about the American flag and some of the historical violence that's uh, implied with it, that goes along with it. So you have 13 uh, nooses hanging in a row. Uh, This is a piece that set off a lot of (laughs) excitement, so to speak. Um, It's a piece called 6X that I was working on, and uh, there's a funny story to this piece. I was working in Los Angeles in a loft, and um, the FedEx man comes to the door, and... He's delivering me a package, and he sees all these little suits and hats and things, and he says, you know, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you're making children clan suits. And I said, well, you know, what it's all about is, you know, it's about the idea of teaching how racism is taught, and it's a learned thing. And, and we got into this really incredible conversation, and he came in and actually had a coffee and sat down while I'm sewing these pieces. And um, the funny part about it is he, he ended up coming to the show. It was, it was pretty great. Uh, So the piece is called 6X and they're all in a children's size uh, 6X and the hats are modeled off of of children's heads. The piece, every time it's installed, gets attacked for some reason or the other. Somebody takes a personal... It it really somehow taps into something that that gets people physical with the piece. This is a piece called Erasure Chair. It's uh, around the same... Uh, period. I think it's 18, uh, 1990. And I basically took all the uh, chalkboard erasers and covered a, a school desk and kind of carved into the seat so that there was a presence of a body that no longer exists. So I was really interested in how uh, the body, actually in all of the work from the beginning started to really uh, get formed around the absence of the body and the erasure of of the identity in a subtle way. I wanted to use the kind of uh, minimalist voice again and charge that politically. So erasure chair was kind of a, a, and 6x was a very big turning point in the work uh, because I was using objects and it really led me into a a visual or excuse me, more of an image based thing from here. This is a piece called Poliwano. and what I did was I had a a lectern with a microphone and a live bird uh, sitting, screaming into the live mic into the gallery uh, with this chalkboard that was painted on the wall, and what happened was, is there was an actual chalkboard that I made, but the gallery at the time refused to ship the chalkboard, so I said, well, I've got to do this piece because this is the cornerstone of the show. So I just said, well, you know what? I'm just gonna paint this on the wall. So what it did was it created this kind of cinematic effect of the bird against this black wall. And as the bird started to move its wings, you know, you'd sort of see these beautiful trails. And it it really sort of sunk in as as an image for me that I really wanted to take that somehow and create sort of drawings based on that. I I wasn't sure what I was gonna do at that point, but it was such a beautiful image that I I just sort of filed it in the memory. Uh, An offshoot of this is that I hired this bird, which was a a kind of a Hollywood actress bird from one of these places. (laughs) And so I didn't know what the bird said. And uh, her name was Lolita. So she would yell, you, you. Into the mic, and I love you. I love you. So it was this really great moment where people get accosted by this, you know, this bird. And uh, she ended up jumping down off the lectern and chewing through all the fax machine and telephone wires in the gallery. Got all pissed off at me, and it was was pretty great. But how how could you hate on a bird that says f you" and I love you? So you know, I didn't get in too much trouble. Um, So. Basically, I went back to the studio and was thinking about children's film and how children learn uh, through, and, and now having a child, a small child, you really get affected by what your kid is receiving visually, what you're putting her down in front of. And at the time, that's what I was thinking. How do parents plant their child in front of certain images? And whether they're thinking about it or not, this is seeping into the child's psyche. And I started to look at what are considered children 's films, and I thought well Bis- disney 's probably the classic and uh, Dumbo being uh, one of the most interesting in a sort of racially constructed way because I started to talk to folks about their memories of Dumbo, and uh, it actually broke down along racial lines. Uh, black folks remembered the crows, these step and fetch at crows from Dumbo and White folks didn't, and this, it wasn't always constant, but I thought, wow, how could a film break down into such racial lines like that? And I remembered the crows, and uh, I thought, wow, that's, that's a really strong uh, sort of response. So I started to take the images of these crows out of the film and, play, and start drawing them on the chalkboard surface, and then starting to attempt to erase them. What I really was after was sort of erasing a stereotype and the thing is with a chalkboard is that when you erase it, the image still stays, it still resonates, it's still, there's still a ghost image of that. And I thought that that was the perfect political statement of what I was trying to get after, of using this sort of a surface of learning and uh, teaching and uh, coupling it with these filmic images that was all about teaching somebody to overcome their shortcomings, this you know, elephant with the big ears and all this. And the crows in the movie end up teaching Dumbo how to fly and using his, what's considered his shortcomings to be a positive and all of this and, and have this kind of race-charged imagery. And so the erasure drawings were basically born right then. <clears throat> this is the first uh, wall drawing uh, that I did, it's untitled uh, Crow series. And I remember doing this piece in Los Angeles and um, thinking, you know, what I really wanted to do is take the drawings out of the, the frame. And I wanted to really sort of include into the dialogue the, the uh, institution that these drawings were placed in. So for me, wall drawings is, was a way and is a way of kind of including the institution that those drawings and those things sit in into the dialogue of, that, uh, uh, of those issues. And so by way of drawing this uh, crow in the gallery itself it was a, is a sort of exchange between the issues within the work and the implicit nature of, of the gallery system and, and um, black artists and artists of color. Um, in the gallery itself. I, didn't re- I wasn't really quite sure how it was going to work because it was one of those pieces where when you work in a very small studio, you have this idea and uh, you can't really execute it in the space until you get there. So there I was you know, late at night probably drinking beers in this gallery and I said, you know, let me just do this right now. And I don't, the gallery really didn't know that I was going to do that with the space. So it, it turned, turned into a, uh, quite an important piece for me. Around that time, as I started to get more confident with using the wall drawings, uh, instead of just anchoring them just to certain films, I started to realize that um, part of the power of an artist is, is to, um, you start to create your own voice and your own language with, visually with your work. And I started to pull out fragments from different films that I was uh, looking at, in this case they were uh, 1930s and 40s race cartoons and start to, you know, kind of poetically play, like pulling one image from one film and, pu- and pulling it, another one from another film and putting those together and kind of almost mixing them the way you would with a DJ. You put one on one turntable and you put it on the other turntable and you start mixing. And uh, so in this case, I started using images, the noose from one uh, film with uh, this Bosco and Honey cartoon, which, plays its way through a lot of of the earlier work. This is at the Drawing Center. Uh, Around 1993, I started to really become comfortable with with using some of this imagery, and uh, the Whitney tapped me for the Whitney Biennial, and I thought, wow i 've done a lot of these drawings over the course of the last few years, and it might be interesting to start dealing with a kind of fragmentation and how we uh, think about memory because the wall drawing uh, the erasure drawings for me were really about uh, erasing or an attempt at erasing a stereotype, but bringing that legacy or that ghost with it as it stays so you 're blurring an image or abstracting an image, but you 're never truly erasing it so I started to take out all the eyes from all the figures that I used prior to this drawing and create this huge uh, wall piece, which was a kind of play off of this, uh, the joke of smile or open your eyes, I can't see you in the dark kind of thing. And I created the wall of eyes. This piece was important because that notion of fragmentation really started to take off and I, I kind of feel like that was the turning point where um, you go from, uh, you know, almost pulling from a pop cultural reference and starting to make your own voice or finding your own voice within your language. <clears throat> right after that I started doing uh, this chalkboard series which uh, the I maestro is in. So this is what I'm talking about with the fragmentation where I started to play visually and really starting to think about composition and that kind of play, because for me, once you had that kind of politic embedded in the work, then it became uh, my responsibility to start playing with it and and not becoming so sort of didactic or dogmatic and um, start to play with the images. Triple I Maestro, uh, which is outside... Um, came from two different uh, race cartoons from the 30s. Around the same time, um, shortly after, I should say, uh, a curator approached me about this space in Los Angeles called the Landon Foundation. And um, she said, you know, these drawings are really powerful, you know, have you ever considered doing a wall joint, like a whole show? Has anybody ever offered you an entire show to let you just go in there and do your thing? So, you know, like any artist, you know, you sit there and say, yeah, no, yeah, sure, I'll do it. You know, I've never done it before. And I had no idea. So I flew out to LA and I saw the size of the space and was just like, you know, shocked at the size of this. This drawing right here is alone is probably 65 feet long. So, you know, a cocky artist, you say, yeah, I can pull this off, no problem, and you go back to your studio and kind of freak out a little bit. So I started to think about the locations and um, basically removing the bodies, removing some of the, uh, the figures that identified or anchored the way that, you, that the cartoon is being understood, and I thought about them as almost uh, environments. So I thought, why not create like a kind of ghostly uh, ballroom where, where the... The implication of bodies moving through space um, is there and just that act of erasure will create that kind of movement of those, those ghosts through a room. So the ballroom, which was pulled from the background of one of those 30s cartoons, became the uh, center point for the rest of the show. This is a ghost ship uh, from the same show. is the uh, king's throne. Put this in so that you can get an understanding of maybe the scale of how big that room room was. Shortly after uh, doing the Landon Foundation show, I uh, did a show at, at Metro Pictures when uh, they were still in, in Soho. And like any other artist, once you're offered uh, one show and you start to gain sort of confidence with size and scale of your work, um, I came back home and did this three very large wall drawings, uh, Boom being one of them and two to follow. Uh, Boom was basically that big explosion that happens in you know the Road Runner or um, any number of cartoons where the big explosion happens and there's lots of arms and things and, and it's supposed to be a moment of humor and at the same time it has this inherent violence to it and I thought that this is the image, that explosion that moment of impact that happens that collides both humor and violence at the same time and boom is is the perfect title for this piece and it became uh, one of the signature pieces that people think about when they think about the uh, the wall drawings. This is a gazebo. And I'll, I guess I'll put up the next one as well. This is Ghoster. Uh, basically, for me, it became about removing... Uh, not removing. I think that as I was moving through the work, it started to get anchored ex- you know, exclusively to a voice about American race. And I thought that these issues, these political issues, are not just anchored towards an American experience, and really what we're after is drawing on how we construct our own memory, how we reconstruct memories, how... Um, You know, when you think back to childhood of a moment, you remember either the good moments or the bad moments, and you're not really seeing the entire picture. You're filling in um, or building over those parts. So this was a moment when I started to move outside of just the cartoons and into environments, locations, things that jogged your memory that also had a kind of social... Um, relevance and class relevance to it as well. The the idea of how uh, the image of a a gazebo, what that really means to you um, collectively but in your personal experience, whether it be a moment of love and and, an interaction of love or uh, a meeting point for a social uh, event. um, It really became about how we reconstruct those experiences and those moments for me. So, uh, there's this big, whipping gazebo flying through the room. Ghoster was basically made up of a lot of different... I really loved the idea of amusement parks and how we think about amusement parks. And, uh, you know, sort of the economy of amusement parks, you know, whether you can um, have that access to it, literally, economically, or, um, or your proximity to it um, and I think everyone has an experience at an amusement park in some way and so the, the Ghoster was this building three or four different wooden roller coasters that I felt kind of had a, uh, you have a, a relationship to that memory individually and then collectively we can sort of break it down as well. So. That's where ghosts sort of came from. So it's it's this it has this image of almost a, a collapsing um, memory of childhood in a way. At this point, uh, that's, I went back to uh, making objects as well, but the issues around uh, how I approach the work remain the same. So, in this piece, this is called Sound Garden, um, also installed at the Old Metro Pictures where I took the, I went to the Boston Garden and anybody that follows basketball knows that the Celtics have this very famous sort of parquet floor. And the Celtics are a a team that's always been in the middle of race issues in sports, whether it's uh, uh, Larry Bird against Magic Johnson or whatever, for some reason, through the history of, of sports, the Celtics have always been a team that comes up when you start thinking about uh, race issues in sports. So at the same time, the Boston Garden is one of the most beautiful sports arenas in, in the world. And watching basketball players move on a court is, is almost like watching uh, you know a ballet. So basically what I wanted to do was take some of the ideas of, around uh, sports and how it connects to um, racial identity with uh, sort of the idea of dance. And uh, through the speakers that are mounted at the top with the shoes, there's a series of tap shoes that are thrown over, Um, there's a, a, a waltz, an instruction of a waltz that repeats over and over. And as it repeats, certain pieces of the text start to get erased. So you hear the original step forward, turn to the left, that kind of instruction. And then by the end, the entire uh, you're, you're only hearing bits and pieces, fragments of what the instruction actually is. So it's a, it's a real sort of literal erasing of bodies in the room. Difficult piece to maintain, though, because the flowers, and that was around June, so we had a hard time maintaining those flowers. <clears throat> this is a piece called Lineup, Up, and uh, it was installed at the Whitney Museum. I had done this piece, and this is probably a better piece called um, "Better to to Show It," uh, a piece called "Everlast Champion." And basically, I was thinking about the way, at the time, uh, Air Jordans was the popular sneaker on the street, and in New York City and other kind of walking cities, uh, kids were kind of shooting each other over the status symbol of having these shoes, and in New York. You were, it was more status to actually take the shoes from somebody because there was this kind of hunter mentality that you'd have to go and seek, find the person that wears your shoe size and take those shoes from them. So I was thinking about that and then the, uh, how the sneaker companies are targeting young urban kids to wear these shoes and at the same time you know, having them shoot each other over the value of these overpriced sneakers. So I started to cast these sneakers in uh, uh, gold plating, and how the absence of their bodies, you know the, uh, was indicted, I guess you'd say. Um, one of the, the things that, that the threads that follow us through in a lot of the work is the way that I think about sports, um, whether it be basketball or uh, boxing, and I'd like to tie them to the beauty of dance, because there's this the way two boxers move dancing through a boxing ring has a real relationship to the way two really uh, skilled ballroom dancers can and I, th- I thought that this is a really interesting kind of uh, uh, social weighing one against the other of sports and uh, the class issues around ballroom dancing. And I came up with this piece. It's a third-scale boxing ring, excuse me. Uh, Shortly after that, I went back to the chalkboards and uh, the erasure drawings. I continued doing them, but I sort of left them to the... uh, An artist tends to get pigeonholed from time to time into a certain kind of visual voice. And I thought that the erasure drawings were really kind of almost coming to a place where I can't move them anymore. And I wanted to try to make them more physical. So I started to do these chalkboards on these rolling chalkboards and force the viewer to actually kind of move through and experience the work from one way and then turn around and come back another way. So in this case, you you have like a forest on one side and you have all these architectural uh, images uh, ironically from a train when I was passing, I think I was coming down to Washington or going up to New Haven, all the, I started to think about uh, trains and train stations and uh, how we move through train stations from, uh, along a train line. And uh, I really liked the way that we you sort of pass time and there's a visual familiarity as you go from station to station, um, they all sort of start looking the same kind of like being lost in a forest. Uh, At this point, I started to think about... I I met a guy that... um, I I had an idea that I wanted to make a physical erasure drawing. And I was talking to a guy that that does... uh, I can't remember what exactly the term is, but he uses a a laser system to carve out of foam uh, an object that's drawn through a computer. So I said, you you actually, like, I could give you a drawing and you could make that a 3D project. So this 3D modeling program that he had, he said, yeah, I could probably do that. So I started to take, to sort of mine through um, old police uh, confiscated uh, stills, like liquor stills. I was really interested in the idea of um, how liquor is consumed and um, the idea of wanting to be somewhere outside of your body. That notion of getting so drunk that you're outside of the body. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting idea to be, you want to be anywhere else but here. So I came up with a show called Country Grammar that um, we took some drawings that were of these confiscated stills. And why the still, you might say, is that I, I always thought of the still as kind of this ghost or a myth because it's this thing that you, you hear about moonshine but you never really see like what a still actually looks like. Like everybody know, like, can say a still but you don't really know what it looks like. So I started to look through all these police photographs and I found these old stills and started to do some of my drawings. Handed them to this 3D modeling guy and he basically turned them into these 3-D drawings of the erasure drawings. In this case, these are some of the um, slang terms used for alcohol and being drunk. This is the um, formula for making moonshine. One of the stipulations about showing this piece is that um, I always wanted the paint, I, it was, <laughs> it's always very difficult because I always demand that the piece be repainted to the exact paint that's used in the gallery. And that's not always a very easy task because people's like, you know, uh, well, you know, it's just Benjamin Moore or something. there. It's like, no, I need the exact paint so that this still gets painted to be, you know, a ghost in the room so it almost disappears. Drives Metro crazy. Uh, This is a similar body of work that uh, another show that I did at Metro um, where I started to, I moved from the moonshine thing into more radios and and, uh, actually it was more, it was based around hip hop culture and gang culture in the 70s and 80s. And uh, having grown up in in the 70s and 80s, there were these radios that were. sort of these collector's items, ghosts in a way, because they really don't exist anymore. And I started making these um, uh, old boombox radios. In this case, I took uh, a piece of text from, uh, that was about semiotics and the structure of language, and I gave it to uh, a DJ and had him mix uh, Big L's uh, Ebonics <clears throat> song with this text, so he cuts it back and forth uh, to actually confuse the understanding of what you're hearing. So you're hearing a lecture about semiotics and the structure of language, but you're also hearing this Ebonics rap from the rapper Big L. This is uh, a piece that's, uh, the images are from the Black Spades, which was a, a very menacing street gang in the 70s. These are some of the slangs and terms for street drugs at the time. Shortly after that, I did a show called 1964 um, at a place called the Bowen Foundation in the city uh, in New York. And I hadn't done color yet. And I was really interested, since a lot of the work that I'd done, whether from the early slides that I've shown before, a lot of this work was, is all pulled from film. Everything is pulled from film. The size and the scale of these wall drawings are all related back to um, the, the movie screen and this, you know, that big overpowering awe that you get when you're looking at a movie. Um, I really wanted it out of the wall drawings. So I started to think this space here is in New York City. It's uh, a kind of odd space architecturally. And... I was really thinking about the year 1964 and what it meant. I was born then, uh, and started thinking about architecture. Philip Johnson, uh, him being like a very controversial figure because he, he was, you know, he was charged with being like an anti-Semite at a certain period. At the same time, he's also kind of the the godfather of modernism in a way. Um, so he was very controversial as a figure, and he. Uh, was attached to certain uh, structures of how New York City was, was designed. So I, I was really looking at Johnson and the, the glass house as this uh, point in modernism where, uh, is it fixed or is it, you know, blurred? And this piece, the glass house, was, was one of the, the main pieces in, in uh, the Bowen shell. <coughs> In this piece, uh, I was thinking of the, the movie Marnie from uh, Alfred Hitchcock, which he did in 64, and the character in Marnie is a, is a very com- complicated uh, psychological figure who, uh, she's a kleptomaniac, that once she sees the color red, she goes into, she really goes outside of her body in the film. and. Uh, she starts to steal things. It's a, it's, a really, it's a very interesting film. It's also a film that, that is not as attached or remembered in the history of when you start thinking about Hitchcock, because you, you might think about The Birds or Rear Window or Vertigo or, or one of these other films. But at the time, in 64, I think that Marnie was uh, not really considered one of his great films, so it was sort of pushed aside. And I really sort of liked the idea of, of drawing that back out and attaching it to that year. So we painted the entire room with this intense red and had all these chandeliers which were, drawn, which were taken from the film itself um, and they're all whipping around the room. Um, this piece is based on the uh, the World's Fair, which occurred in '64 in New York. Um, I just amount of loss for the title. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> basically, uh, why you might say why green, the green, red, and and, uh, and blue. What I was thinking was how uh, the the idea of film gets broken down into the three those three basic colors. And I was using uh, wall, you know, uh, what is it called? Green screen and blue screen as this kind of reference point within the drawings. So there was all this implied structure to the way that film and architecture and all these the way that you moved through that year, 64 being a very uh, important year I guess as far as uh, moving into the future. Um, This is a piece that I did, I did a show in London that was um, based on, well, excuse me, I should back up. I really was interested in, in, after 64, I started looking at some of the films that shaped the way my childhood was shaped. And some of the early science fiction movies were a a really interesting way that race was explored through film. And um, I started to look back at um, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is a great movie of the early 70s, that um, talks about this kind of society that gets turned upside down, and the, these sort of mutant animals start taking over, and there's a there's a real flip of social structure. So we did the whole show based on Island of Dr. Moreau. This is the last scene in the film when the house that all of this madness goes on starts to collapse. This is the same show. From there, uh, recently I did an exhibition uh, in New York that was based on, uh, it's called Night of the Fires, that uh, was based on Planet of the Apes. And Planet of the Apes, uh, Conquest for the Planet of the Apes, was a film that was based around uh, the Watts riots. So um, they used that as a structure, and I I really sort of liked the idea of Planet of the Apes as as a as a concept to begin with because it was a complete upside-down structure where um, the apes are taking over and they are now, uh, you know, sort of on top of the social structure and they've taken the humans and enslaved them. So using... I thought that was an interesting usage of the Watts riots, which is reality and and importing it into this science fiction moment. And I started to look at some of the Watts riots. So... um, what I did was I started to take bits of text out from the film uh, versus lines in, you know, uh, from the film and taking it and putting it back into uh, structures from the Watts Riots themselves so as locations. So in this case, marked increase in property damage was uh, a voiceover that you hear throughout the film. And the font and uh, uh, the visual structure of it came from uh, one of the sites during the Watts Riots. So it's kind of a bashing of the two together. Here we have downtown LA as a, a burning, just one big burning city. I've really been interested in taking out the figure completely and using the architecture um, and what the implications are of the architecture. It it has a sort of history to it, onto itself. And this is the last piece that I've recently worked on, which is a commission uh, at the uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York, where we actually got a chance. It's it's visually very close to the location of the World's Fair monuments. Uh, And this is the most recent piece that we've we've worked on. And that's it. Thank you. Sorry, I'm I'm a little dry. So if you have any questions, please
0: fire away Hi, good evening um, w- While looking through your works, i was uh, uh kind of con- uh, c- concerned about how do you preserve them if do you use chalk real chalk yeah how is it preserved? <laughs> <laughs> so um, that they don't get totally erased.
1: A <laughs> question gets asked all the time. Uh, you know, one of the things about the erasure drawings is that uh, they're about experience, in a way. You know, I can show you the, these photographs and things, but it's not quite the same as being in the room itself. And they're so temporal, and they're so delicate. Uh, and I think that kind of adds to it. So they get erased, the big wall drawings. They get painted out and become part of the history of that building. Uh, in permanent installations, we've, we have fixative and things like that, so the last piece, which was the, the hospital piece, that's, it's more of a, um, an oil paint that's rubbed in a very specific way to give you the impression of the chalkboard, but it has more permanence to it, so it can't really be damaged. But the other ones that are more temporal and, and temporary, uh, they disappear, once they're gone, they're gone. So it, it's really the kind of piece that you have to... And then it, it, I really like that in a way because it sort of sits in your memory and shifts and changes. So it's always changing. That's fixed. That actually has fixative sprayed on it. Hi. First of all, amazing. The whole body of work. Oh, thank you. When you did your game drawings, what was the reaction? I mean, because they're beautiful. Um... Thank you, first of all. (laughs) Uh, You know, I chose part of the... I say I stick to the 70s for some reason because I think that we romanticize the 70s in a lot of ways um, in a way that's almost different than the 60s. And um, I I think that those gangs are part of kind of history in a way. They don't really... They don't exist in the same way as, say, like the Bloods and the Crips or any other sort of, uh, you know contemporary street uh, gang functions. So I think that there is, a, in one way, they have a kind of menacing image to them, but there's a, a kind of a reminiscence to them as well of a time from the past. So, you know, like the the um, the nomads or the black spades or something are, are part of, you know, 1972, you know, Mayor Lindsay years. <laughs> how do you, how do you mean?
0: Is, is it, is your education in elementary school in the university, any of those issues are they
1: portrayed in the, your um, That's interesting that you sh- should ask that. Um, I mean, I think what fueled my interest in, in education as, as a whole, um, I'm, my family's from the West Indies, and I was having a conversation with a cousin of mine who went to school in the West Indies, and I, I really realized at the time that my education was for the most part an American experience, like you learn about American history and, and you know you touch a little bit here and there on world history, whereas his experience was more of a world history out. Like the, the more the minority information he was getting was American history, whereas he was learning a lot more about European history and um, things like that. So uh, you know it started to occur to me that like wait a second, you know like why, why am I why is this like this? Like, why is your experience, you know, different than mine? And I think that that, um, I can't say that's the pinpoint moment when it happened, but it, it certainly fueled a question for me, like, you know, how we understand um, the act of learning or history. I also think it was also, you know, art school had a lot to do with it because um, there was a lot of frustration at the time for me. Um, I loved working with with Kasuth and Windsor and, you know, uh, I had Jack Witten. He was a great artist that I worked with. Um, Michael Goldberg. I had a lot of you know great. People. And then I went out to Los Angeles and I worked with uh, like John Baldessari and people like that. So it, it, I really was fortunate at that level to have folks that sort of made you the way that you address your work or the way that you structure it was both from the minimalists like Windsor and then somebody like Doug Hubler you know at at uh, at Cal arts it was a, it was pretty great and plus it, at at, uh, at visual arts, I was working with like Craig Owens and uh, Douglas crimp and a lot of people you know a lot of that eighties uh, theory so you, you were really looking at uh, deconstruction It was big. Hi. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these were the party boys, these are
0: the guys who see the newspaper every day.
1: Yeah. You know, what were you thinking, what what was going through your mind when you, like,
0: the paper or whatever you see, you know, a or when you talk to Basquiat?
1: Well, you you didn't see, you you know, John really, during, when he was alive, uh, right before he died, he really um, couldn't find a show. I mean, he actually, he went into uh, rehab, I think, in California, and uh, it wasn't. What you think of Basquiat like now, and and I think that Basquiat and his connection to graffiti, I was really attached to a lot of graffiti artists at the time. The 80s was a great time to be making work or even learning about work, and um, he he was I was peripherally friends with friends of mine, um, but that didn't seem it didn't it didn't resonate for me, you know it didn't it wasn't uh, somehow the structure of that party scene wasn't my thing. I was really about you know a chair is a chair is a chair, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, I was really looking at, you know, like Mel Bachner and, uh, you know, a lot of those guys. So uh, it's not like I didn't appreciate that work that was going on. I thought that that was great work, but it didn't have that kind of impact like it does now. Like if I look back at that now, um, actually there's a funny story I could probably tell you about. Basquiat, he was friends with a roommate of mine at the time, and they used to shoot heroin in our house, and I had a real, I could deal with, like, I, you know, I smoked weed, and, you know, you'd do with drinking and all this shit, but the, the heroin thing was, like, a real problem, and so I'd say, you know, Aaron, I can't deal with you guys doing this shit in the house. I just, I don't want to hear it. and they'd get high and, you know, do all these drawings all over the place, so, and I'd get all pissed off and clean up the house, fucking John, man. you know, and I'd throw things away, and I'm picking up drawings, because he would draw on everything, he would draw on, you know, chicken bags and all this shit, and you're just throwing it in the trash, you know, and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars going in, you know, and I, it never occurred to me that, like, this might be worth something someday, you know, it was just somebody that's pissing me off, and I, I, really, I didn't know him, you know, he was just friends of my roommate, so it's, it, was, it was fun, actually throwing away probably a million dollars worth of work. <laughs> um, hello, Gary. Um, I had a chance to work with you in 95 when Miranda McClennick organized the exhibition here. Hi. I remember we were supposed to have um, some poets come here, but I think the whole idea got nixed. And, um, um, but that wasn't my question, but I, I also remember something else that you did around the same time. I went out to Insight 97 and I remember you did uh, an installation that was outdoors. Yep. And I noticed that of the works that you showed tonight, you didn't have anything uh, that was installed outside. Have you done anything like that since? Uh, the, uh, you know, wow, you caught me out there. I, I, um, we couldn't get good photographs. We were like busy trying to scan. I was really wanting to show that piece. I did a piece called Ghost House, which um, holds a real you know, dear spot for me in, in the work, and basically I wanted to go out to uh, uh, the desert and find a house, like an old abandoned house, and do just draw the entire house, and, and we did that project, um, but the reproductions are just, like, not great, and I, we have to dig them dig out. I haven't had a chance to do something like that. That was a very special project at the time. I'd love to go back and do it again. You know, I'd love to do, like, a townhouse or something, um, you know, we were we were coming down on the train, and I was going on and on about my love for Baltimore.